I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli, and I write for The New York Times and The New Yorker. And I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. This is episode 50 of Three on the Isle, a twice-monthly podcast from New York about theater in America. We are hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Well, you'll all notice that there are only two on the aisle today. Our co-host, Terry Teachout, can't be with us. Many of you who follow our podcast uh, or Terry on social media know of the long-term health struggles of his wife, Hillary, affectionately known as Mrs. T. So Hillary, it really feels odd to call her Hillary because we always called her Mrs. T. And, yeah. Uh, uh, that was really. I think it's nice to call her to, Hillary too, though. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, so Hillary died on March 31st uh, as she was recovering from lung transplant surgery, and our hearts really go out to Terry. And so we're very happy to dedicate our 50th episode to Mrs. T's memory. And not only that, an emergency relief fund, uh, uh, a relief grant fund, has been established in Hillary's name by the painter Makoto Fujimura and his international arts movement. So if you want to learn more or donate in her name, which provides grants to artists, go to IamCultureCare.com. That's spelled out, I-A-M CultureCare.com. All right. And now uh, onto the episode. Um, so in the midst of this surreal and completely insane and awful time for, for, for all of us, uh, we wanted to... <laughs> We're like, who could be uplifting? Who could just jazz everybody up? Yeah. And uh, and by all accounts, our guest is a forward-thinking theater leader and uh, and a and, and a boost to the spirit. Uh, Peter, I think you can. You've know her a lot more I than I do. To that. I think you can attest to her energy. Um, so our guest today is Maria Manuela Goyanes, um, who's the artistic director of Washington's Woolly Mammoth Theater and former director of producing and artistic planning at the Public Theater. So then after a conversation by Skype with Maria, Elizabeth and I will uh, report on what we've uh, watched or will watch online, which is where theater is to be found these days. Except uh, when we're talking about our uh, production of uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in our home, <laughs> when we go insane at each other due yeah. to Kevin Fever. Yeah, there are George and Martha's all over America now. Uh, oh, yes. Backbiting. <laughs> Passive-aggressive little asides. I am happy to say that is not true in my household. Oh, um, so first, uh, we're going to talk to Maria Goyanis, long the producing right arm for Oscar Eustace, the artistic director at The Public, where she worked on many, many shows over the last two decades, uh, including Hamilton and Fun Home in their original incarnations. In 2018, she was selected to succeed the founder of Woolly of Woolly Mammoth, Howard Schulwitz, as artistic director, uh, which is one of the most dynamic and inventive nonprofit uh, companies in the country, in my estimation. This season, it started off with a bang. It presented a smashing rendition of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Fairview, uh, and then. This coming September has announced plans for a new production of Michael R. Jackson's musical A Strange Loop, which just was selected as best musical of the season by the New York Drama Critics Circle. Uh, it was going to be a re-slightly tweaked version that is being readied for future now, God knows when, uh, Broadway uh, development. So that still may be happening. We don't know. 
And I also want to say that the the A Strange Loop won Best Musical at the New York Drama Critic Circle, but it was one of the most landslide victories that I've seen in in many, many, many years. It was wow. absolutely stunning. Um, wow, that's anyway. great. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, okay, so back to Maria. It's no no Strange Loop right now. Uh, she has to deal with the challenge which is an understatement, of running a theater that can't produce theater. Maria, welcome to Three on the Isle. So we're going to jump right in, right in into the horror, <laughs> the live uh, Great. the live uh, version of uh, um, Station Eleven. Uh, so what is it like to take the reins of a theater and have your work short-circuited just as you were picking up steam? Oh, my goodness. Um it's a great question. I feel like that's happening around the rest of the country too. So many of us have uh, recently taken over theaters and are learning how to be artistic directors. <laughs> and, then, and then this pandemic hits. I, mm. um, I personally have to shout out uh, the staff at Woolly Mammoth and the board of Woolly. I mean, we're all in this together for sure. And I also feel that way with all the other artistic directors and managing directors. We're all talking to each other constantly, texting each other. We have Slack channels that I now know how to use <laughs> um, and zooming um, and just trying to actually collect information and share information with each other. So I actually, what's, what's booing me is the community um, of artistic directors and particularly the ones who are new, because it's really heartbreaking. I'm just, I, I'm just going to lay it on the line. Like for these artists uh, to not come and do their work that they've been working on for, you know, years a lot of these playwrights um not to mention those musicals that have been um you know gestating and ultimately you know what are you going to do there's nothing you know this is completely out of my control the the only thing that we can do is just try to actually not cancel and postpone and bring them back in some way and that's really sort of creating this sort of shifting grounds of what does the season even look like after this? Uh, and we're having lots of those discussions. How do you even cope? First of all, Maria, have you had to uh, furlough staff? I mean, is there, how are you sustaining the infrastructure of the company at this moment? Yeah, this is, we are definitely in that kind of zone of small to mid-sized theater that is not small enough that we can just like contract and wait it out and not big enough that we have lots of deep pockets on our board. So we are a $5 million theater um, and probably going to toggle between that and less <laughs> in the next number mm -hmm. of years. And so we are, uh, luckily, um, Woolly Mammoth had the forethought to do a campaign um, to uh, before they hired an artistic director. And so part of that actually has allowed us to have some reserves and we have about two months of wow. reserves. Um, that said, we would, we would have had to furlough staff had it not been for right now the PPP loan. So we just got it. So the part of the, the CARES oh. Stimulus Act is for the small businesses is to actually have this payroll protection program where um, 
we can cover our payroll for about eight weeks from the moment that you get the money. Um, and so we actually just um, let our staff know today that we can cover them to mid-June, which is huge. And then we're going to keep working to try and figure out what's happening in wow. the later part of June Amazing. and July and August. Um I, I, what I've heard is that the money is running out. We are really lucky. We bank with TD Bank. We just started banking with them only a year, a year and a half ago, and they were able to push through our application. And so we were able to get it and get approved. But I know a lot of theaters that don't have that yet. And, um, it's a little scary because they rolled this thing out and they didn't actually have all the infrastructure ready. So we, we even don't know what the forgiveness guidelines are. So it's, uh, Supposedly, we will have a portion, um, have the payroll forgiven, and it will turn from a loan into a grant, um, and that's what we're hoping. So that's how we're that it's lit, very touch and go. <laughs> this is not the way that you want to run a theater. <laughs> uh, so go ahead, we, Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah, we, we're already uh, hearing that some. Well, for instance, uh, the Public Theater in New York has just announced that it's not doing Shakespeare in the Park this summer. Um, clearly, people already, many people already, kind of not counting on the summer at all. So we're talking September, October, which is traditionally a busy season. But other people are saying also maybe 2021. Um, so now we're getting into a whole different thing. It's not just adjustment. It's radical changes. Like, is that stuff that you guys are already thinking about? It's not like tweaks. No, we are it's all doing massive scenario planning. Yeah. And it's, it's, you're absolutely right. It's not like tweaks. And unless there's a vaccine or something that helps us, it's not just in terms of the physical safety of our audience, but also psychologically, who wants to sit next to somebody in a, in a thousand seat house in September? I don't know what that's going to look like. And frankly, you know, what we're hearing from Governor Newsom in California and even Governor Cuomo, that the unpausing of our economy is going to go in phases. And, you know, um, most folks are saying that theater is going to be last, like those gathering places for, for um, uh, you know, hundreds or thousands of people are going to be last, um, which is really scary for sure. And so I think that um, I think almost uh, all of the people who I've spoken to have sort of said the summer is not going to happen for us that's the same we we announced this week that we were we were doing this nsfw festival about sex positivity and body positivity which let me tell you in an era era of physical distancing and social distancing makes no sense oh so interesting it's so it's like interesting mind-blowing um but uh anyway so so we're gonna wait it's... on that wow but wow when I, I know, right? When I think about uh, September and October, we're trying to sort of figure out what we could do, how we can change the space so that folks will feel okay sitting, um, you know, apart from each other. What is the configure? What does the configuration look like? And frankly, it is going to be pretty drastic in terms of earned revenue and what the capacity of these theaters are. There's there's no question about that. And I know some theaters who are saying, we're just going to come back in January, we're going to call it the 21 season, and they're not actually, they're just going to keep going 
and do a uh, a season from like January to November. So the whole mm. the whole model of how Ugh. these theaters are built and how we open our shows in September and end in June and then have summer seasons is going to all get upended and is being upended right now. I can't even, you know, I'm trying to put my head around when you announced the body positivity those two plays, I thought, "Oh my god, how of the moment it's planned for just a few months from now. That's the way theater should be thinking. And like turn around and it's suddenly, as you say, the last thing people want to hear about. It's it's the, the 180 degree shift in minds over the period of two months is unfathomable to me, which which raises the question, Maria, you're a really interesting thinker on the question of, you know, getting your putting your finger on the pulse of the culture. What happens when theater loses the string? You know, there was this kind of building towards each moment that comes after logically or somehow, you know, counter programming against the last moment. What happens when a whole period drops out of our cultural education as a community and and what happens to the work in this phantom zone? Um, as you say, do you just postpone it and push it back? Do, are you constantly recalibrating your mind what will work when we do come back and what might have to be jettisoned? For sure. Absolutely. I mean, the fact of the matter is creating a season is a very specific and um, unique alchemy for every theater. And a lot of what artistic directors are charged with is trying to actually think about what are folks going to be talking about, you know, um, and right. what do we want to actually be engaging with? What are the really um, most difficult, challenging, important conversations that we should be having as a community together? Right. This question about gathering and how we gather um, I, I do believe that without actual gathering, society actually lacks a very important space to reflect and grapple on what it means to be human and what it means to actually sort of think about our uh, complexity and differences and representation. I do really believe that. So I don't necessarily think that it's just everything's got to go online. I think that we have to sort of adapt and think about how to adapt to the different mediums that are available to us so that we can actually honor our commitments to artists as well as to our audiences, um, but not lose sight of the fact that gathering is actually essential to our DNA. Um, I, one of the things we're talking about is that we have to uh, rethink a lot of assumptions on the way this, the system is built. For instance, Yes, the season may not be September to May or June. Um, a lot of theater uh, rely on a subscription model. Well, that seems pretty hard to pull off. I don't know if you guys have like a big subscription thing going. I mean, there's various models on that, but um, thank God, membership no, model, actually, but... we have loyal, we have really loyal um, subscribers for sure. But it's a because again, we're sort of in that category of um, midsize mm -hmm. theater, we, we rely on subscription income for sure, but not to the tune of what happens at arena stage, for example, in DC also, you know, right. Do, do you uh, do you own your your building, your venue? Yeah, so it's a condo. We have a mortgage on it, but there's not not <laughs> much uh, left on it, which is great. Okay, um, and it means that it's a major asset for us. One of the things that is so sad to me is that it's empty, 
And mm. it is mm-hmm. it is it is killing me. The fact that like in the middle of Penn Quarter neighborhood of Washington, D.C., which is like a thriving, vibrant neighborhood. And we all need space that this beautiful theater is just sitting there empty. So I've been thinking about how do we actually offer it um, to the food bank or to a health clinic for testing or you know, we're going to be doing, we're doing our virtual benefit. Um, we're, we also offered it to the Tahare uh, Justice Center, who is doing their virtual benefit out of Wooly also, because they didn't have a space and they um, are about domestic abuse, like trying to actually curb domestic abuse for women and girls. Um, so trying to figure out like the assets that we have and how can we actually utilize them at this moment, mm. if it's not going to be about gathering people for theater, as long as everybody does the social distancing and you know, we're going to have like six people in there in the space with masks and stuff on the on the day that we do the live stream. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. The, the you know, the 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 exp- the idea of expanding what we think of as uh, a, a gathering place for the community seems to be one of the ways that seems like a positive possible uh, thread. What are some what are you thinking about, Maria? Is this, you know, if we're thinking about reinvention or repositioning, even in the sense that, you know, you're going to change the the pattern of the scheduling, maybe short term of theater events. um, What about audience? I mean, how does this take it? Is there a way to reach out to people who didn't think of theater before who might now be possibly brought into the fold? I, mean, I don't mean as a, like a recruit, like a marketing thing, but I mean as a as a as a societal uh, imperative that we we make theater more available to more people. I mean, you know, I was thinking about this because a lot of our country hasn't seen Hamilton yet, and the way that they saw Hamilton or have seen Hamilton is from the Tony's telecast that's on YouTube and other different things like that. So I kept thinking to myself, is like, why am I being so snobby about this <laughs> digital medium mm. of watching theater <laughs> and sort of understand that like folks who don't have access to come to New York and go to Broadway or pay for those tickets are, you know, I got to see uh, you know, who Jennifer Holiday do Effie on Dreamgirls on the Tony's telecast. And that was an, a really important part of my upbringing. <laughs> and so, right. so right. What, one of the things that I think is, is there is a, a democratization that occurs, even, even where we're seeing in a small way where, you know, our virtual uh, party would have been 200 people in person going from restaurant to restaurant. And on Monday we're doing, doing it, um, on uh, YouTube and Facebook, and we already have 700 people signed up. So as far as I'm concerned, a lot of those people, you know, we have family members of staff members in Wyoming and in Ashland and all these other places mm-hmm. who don't know anything about Woolly Mammoth and would like to know what what's happening there, you know? But I, can I just say, I just want to, that's an interesting idea. You know, I, it, it hadn't occurred to me, but, you know, months ago I saw Hangman, the Martin McDonough play at NT Live in a, in a, in a movie theater. And someone, when it was coming to Broadway, someone asked me, or several people said, have you seen Hangman? Did you see Hangman? And you know what? I, I was, I, it caught in my throat because I felt like, well, I had seen it, but it's cheating to say I've seen it. So I have to say, well, well, I saw it on on a screen. You know, I mean, well, I Peter, I Peter, we all know where you where you stand on this. 
Well, well, some people know. Some but people we can know. But go I, there again. Yeah, but I, you know, can I legitimately say I've seen Hangmen? You know, I don't know that that's. I still don't know as a as a, a well, dyed in the wool, you know, in the in the room theater goer. I just don't know how to approach that yet. My mindset hasn't you know, changed. I, I uh, something really stuck with me uh, when when this all started, like mid March. Um, I've been doing roundup. Uh, kind of semi-regular roundups of um, streaming stuff for the times. And uh, the very first one I did was, I think it came out March 17th, something like that. So I was talking to a whole bunch of people and uh, someone from one of the licensing uh, companies, you know, like licensing rights. Uh, and the guy was saying he made an analogy that I had not thought of. And it's really stuck in my head. So because I say, well, are you concerned that People will, if they can see theater on their screen, are you concerned that when we're kind of over this, they will have gone out of the habit of going out to see it? And he said, well, no, because he said his, his model, he said, well, think about it. Like, you know, the, the jam bands like Fish and the Grateful Dead, they always let uh, their fans tape the shows. Hmm. That didn't hurt their their business model was based on that because the mm. fans still went to the show, but they tipped them and they had recording and then they talked about them. Mm. And he said, well, I think the future may involve something. He wasn't sure. But he said, like, I think this is a, a business model that is not, not a bad one to look for. Uh, because, and, and what he said is like showing work means that people are aware of the work and then they want to see more of it. And that could be live when yeah, life comes back. I think what's tricky about it is that uh, let's just be real for a second, right? Sure, when sure. Yeah, I, yeah. When I tape something, tape a production and stuff, and I put it out, um, it the amount of revenue that will actually come in from that production, from a taped production, is not going to be the same as in a thousand seat house full, etc. So the conversation about it being a business model or a business practice is going to be about an addendum to whatever it is that we're doing, um, rather than something that I think uh, uh, actually um, uh, supplants this kind of gathering in some way. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I think we're going to get to a place where we're going to be limited in gathering. And so if we're limited in gathering, it, are the unions still going to allow us to tape to be able to share it with folks who aren't able to come? And can we have both of those things actually happening side by side before we can actually be full again? And I'm not I wasn't suggesting that you were thinking that it would replace it. But but right. I think but I think that the question about how much of a business model, how much we can actually count on from that in terms of right. revenue is very tricky. No, no, no. I didn't mean that in terms of revenue, because I, I don't think anybody thinks that. But I think he was and those bands that he was talking about did not make money from that, clearly, because it was fans trading to each other. Uh, so the bands were left out. But and I think he, he was talking about in relation to the unions being very careful about opening a door that they then could not close. And I completely understand both sides. He was thinking about it more in terms of like, this is almost more like a marketing tool. It's not a revenue stream. You, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I, I agree on that union front. It's really scary. Like, so mm -hmm. I guess Disney on Broadway is going to happen actually. Um, so 
this issue in terms of those musicians who said, we actually do want to perform. And I know that you're trying to, as head of our union, protect us, but ask us next time or something like that. There, We're all in uncharted territory here. And um, I really applaud the unions to actually make sure that folks are getting paid <laughs> because those uh, freelance artists, I mean, really some of the hardest hits in this, uh, in, in this moment. Um, yeah, I, I, I thought the same thing. That was the, and it was the Federation head, not the local president who was objecting. It was one mm -hmm. union leader who was two steps divorced from what was going right. on. So I, I think the, uh, the rest of the, uh, local, the, the local educated him about, uh, you know, where they were, where their heads were at, which was really great and hats off to them. I'm glad that's going forward. Maria, I, you know, you have, so you've, I'm in the midst of exploring something that you're, uh, an, an initiative that you're involved in, which is, um, these micro plays that you've commissioned of playwrights along with St. Louis rep, uh, with, uh, center Long stage Wharf. with, Longworth, yeah. And the public um, theater. And we're actually announcing a whole new batch. Um, Berkeley Rep is coming in. The Kennedy Center is coming into it. The Old Globe is coming into it. The Playwrights Realm, we're announcing a whole bunch. It's for home performance, right? Yeah. I mean, this is the, the you, want, you want to just explain what that is? Absolutely. So it's called playathome.org, and it is uh, micro commissions to playwrights. So we, uh, each of the theaters chose a group of writers to give $500 to, to write a five to 10 minute play. And that play, the guidelines were to make it unproducible. So don't worry about it ever being produced. So you can actually, you know, have all of the things that you've ever wanted on stage happen, <laughs> um, that they would be, uh, Multi-generational, um, meaning that they could be played in family settings, i.e. for the Wooly writers, we had to just say, don't curse. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then also the last guideline was to just think about um, inspiring joy um, while folks are at home. Um, so we are, uh, we have so many scripts. Actually, I don't have the numbers of the number of playwrights, but we have so many on there. And the thing, the stats I can tell you is those plays have all been downloaded over 8,000 times as of this uh, podcast. And we have all collectively given out $37,500 to playwrights as of this, uh, as of this recording. Um, that's an amazing thing for all of us to come together to do that. And I think, and you actually got to, got to zoom bomb one yeah. of them, right? You yeah, were, you were I did. <laughs> yeah. I was in the room, uh, I was in the zoom room with uh, a play uh, by <laughs> Lloyd Sue uh, that was done at, in New Haven uh, on zoom. And I watched this wonderful 12 minute play uh, and and watch the reactions of the people watching it. It was performed by two board members, I think, at Long Wharf. But there was a wonderful joy, uh, that's the word for it, in the space, uh, sharing this piece of art with everyone else that was written for this moment made it very personal and very special. It And it was a real play. I mean, it wasn't a you know, uh, uh, like a, uh, a vanity piece of art. It really was something that spoke to a conversation two people might have uh, in any moment uh, uh, today. So I really it was the first moment I've had online that felt like, oh, my God, theater can happen. Uh, and I it made me wonder 
Maria and Elizabeth, you know, is Zoom a platform that has potential beyond what we're imagining it to have? Are we learning something about how audiences can converge online um, and that sort of in the round experience almost of looking at other audience members across the across the way, you know, is just sort of flattened on the screen. Um, you know, is is that all that sort of that that sort of ephemeral feel that he, that happens when you're watching a piece of theater unfold before you? Is that have an elastic ability on this platform? I would say it's different, right? It's going to be different just because I, I fall into that category of like, I'm really excited for online content, but I'm excited for online content that is specifically made for that platform. Right. You know, and, and to, th and it's, um, it's not enough to just say, you're just going to do the same thing you would have done in the theater online for me. Um, but I do think that there's lots of possibilities. I've been really inspired by, well, not just um, being part of this cohort for Play at Home, but I've been really inspired by the virtual writer's rooms that have been happening. So uh, Susan Laurie Parks is still doing her Watch Me Work through the public, which is basically a writer's room with a Pulitzer Prize winner. And you can just go free and online and be writing in a writer's room with her. Um, I've been really inspired by um, even just like thinking about how to um, how how to galvanize artists in this moment and help them be even more um, employable. So, have you heard about HireArtist.org? No, oh, I heard about that. I haven't. Yeah. Vallejo Gantner, who used to run PS122, mm -hmm. helped spearhead this thing called HireArtist.org. And it is essentially like, hey, listen, you want to learn Mandarin? Hire an mm -hmm. artist to help you. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, um, you want to learn mm -hmm. how to knit? Hire an artist. They have all of these skills. <laughs> and so it's basically trying to figure out how to put money into folks' pockets in some way. So the thing that the Internet is really amazing for is aggregating yes. data from right. um, uh, uh, it has no boundaries in terms of geography. Um, it has a different kind of authenticity because look, I'm sitting in my room. You get to see my, <laughs> you know, Peter, yeah. you had no idea. I had this lamp before, it's, but now you yeah, know I want it. about me. I want it. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm starting, a, I'm starting higher critic where we'll watch you and just merciless, <laughs> mercilessly, Analyze your behavior. I'm actually sending a challenge to you two about this too. I do oh, okay. feel like I do feel like there is something, not necessarily a higher critic, um, but maybe. But I do feel <laughs> like there is. You all are our uh, industry's local celebrities. You are. I've said this to Peter already. Um, folks know you. They read you. They need to hear your voices um, either on this podcast, but in your writing. And the question that I have is. Um, particularly in this moment where um, it is all about how we talk about the theater, how we actually break bread in some way. What are the ways that also the um, the critical community can come together and um, and, uh, you know, and talk about um, the theater well, and help us all learn how to talk about the it's, theater? You it's know? interesting because it's interesting because we've we had. Um, we've had that debate here among like with, with Terry, as, especially because Terry has reviewed um, plays that were streaming and reviewing that's, I'm, that's a whole different thing. Um, but okay. So, well, if we're going to settle into this for a while, like, is this something we need to consider more? I think he was the first one to do that. Um, 
And I, I, I think the, but I, I think there's a way to do it in this platform. There's something, have you heard about the jar? No. The jar is a, uh, is it, the jar is out of uh, Boston. And what it does is it, um, it convenes groups of people like about 12 on, on zoom. Now they used to do it uh, live in a room, you know, with people getting together. It's all about getting a diverse community together. People invite other people on, and you're supposed to invite people who, uh, you wouldn't ordinarily, uh, meet up with. So it might be someone like, who isn't like you in any way, shape or form. And you get together and one of you brings along a piece of art, either, a, a reading or a piece of music or a video, a short video or a music video, whatever it is. And then you convene for about an hour, uh, an experience of talking about the piece and, and, and it's very egalitarian. You bring, you know, it can, and I, I participated in one the other night and it was of a, it was a dance piece on the stage of a, of a church but it was done in, it was a modern dance piece. It was quite lovely. It took about three minutes, but it, it triggered an hour's worth of conversation. And again, it was very egalitarian. People who come from all walks of life, um, we all talked about it. We went around the Zoom. And that may be one way to do this. Well, so... So I think it's a, I, I think something like that is a really great idea because one of the things that I feel like it was happening before this pandemic was this question about um, actually theater journalism and its place in you know in the field and this for me the conversation is actually about how we talk about art and the work and how we actually build those muscles with people um, and how we actually sort of, you know, engage with people in that way. And I wonder whether or not this is a moment to kind of break that open a little bit and kind of actually be in um, concert with people about the theater, about art, about, you know, because part of the part of the thing that I, I came up against when I came to Wooly was, oh, well, that's an artistic thing. Maria gets to talk about that. I don't get to talk about that. I'm in development. And I was like, hmm. didn't you act first? You weren't, like an, <laughs> right. you weren't like a development person when you were 15, were you? Because I remember you telling me that you were in Little Shop or whatever it is and that kind of stuff. And that's how you fell in love with the theater. So you obviously have some opinions, right? Right. So one, one of the things that I feel like I'm excited about is sort of breaking down those barriers in some way so that actually folks can feel like they can be part of that conversation um, and, um, and can really feel connected in that way and engaged in that way. Um, and I think that you all can actually help us do that. These podcasts help us do that, but I think that there mm -hmm. might be other ways um, because, you know, you, your jobs are to actually understand the continuum <laughs> of, the, of the field. Right. And and how hmm. and what what's been happening to get us to this point? What are the trends and what are the trends that we're thinking about in the future that, you know, that's something that you bring to the table that really um, is rare and important. I'm just I'm, I'm curious, for instance, I'm curious, for instance, as to whether people will look for comfort, comforting stuff, material you know, when they're ready for theater again or if they're going to want something to kind of a little bit more provocative or that well I would hope the latter because we only do that <laughs> I'm, 
I'm going to okay, hope so. for the latter. Um, but I, I do, I feel like this, this question goes to something that you had mentioned actually on an earlier podcast of like, are you nervous that people are going to play it safe? And I think we really can't. We have to do the most exciting possible work or else we're, we're basically digging our own graves here, you know, in, and, um, and that's going to be hard because the numbers aren't always going to add up, but they don't often add up in the nonprofit theater, you know? And so how do you actually take that, um, take that, uh, and hold both of those things at the same time, you know? Are right. you, are, are you, are you trying to gently tell me that you're not going to do a Neil Simon season? Because <laughs> I, this conversation has to stop right now. <laughs> I, I know, right? I mean, yeah, the, the day that Neil Simon happens at Woolly Mammoth, it will have to be done by, uh, who would I get to do it? Liliana Blaine okay, Cruz. If, if, um, yeah. if she comes to you, if Liliana Blaine Cruz comes to you and she says, okay, I want to do barefoot in the park, like. Come on, you wouldn't want to see that. I would. I would. That would be that would be interesting um, because I know that her take on Barefoot in the Park would be very different from traditional takes. And so I would actually think about that. So if Liliana's uh, listening to this and it's... you want to do some Neil Simon, come and talk to me about it um, for sure. I think there is something to be said for this idea that you have to when it comes back, you have to hit it hard because the idea that people coming out of this are going to want to understand, you know, why they bothered to come out of this if 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 not for that. If you say the first time you're back, wait, wait, this is what it is. I I I risk I'm I'm venturing forth to feel okay. Fourth night? Well, just to feel okay, you know, just to feel, you know, there may be some palliative quality to that, but really it's really about showing the force and power and overwhelming qualities of theater that we've got to we've got to sort of like focus on in this next phase of of theater life. I think that's so key. Um, and I think that it's really hard to do it at this moment to think abundantly like that, you know, um, to think about um, how to be adaptive and nimble. And I do think that theater organizations are going to look different, not just because the landscape will look different, sadly, um, I think, because... Um, folks, uh, it will be really hard to survive this. But I also think, I hope that organizations will um, actually look different. I'm really grateful for this moment of transformation. Um, and I think that we're going to come out different than when we went in. And I'm, I'm really excited to actually sort of break down some of those barriers and to innovate in ways that, you know, most theaters use the word innovation and provocation in everything that they do. And then they do as you just said, Neil Simon's barefoot in the park, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and, and I think that, um, I'm really excited. Uh, the fact is, is that this is a time of whether it's forced or not of experimentation and transformation. We actually have to, um, have to experiment in this moment to get to the other side and see the other side. And that's, that, that can be exciting. It's scary. Um, but that can be exciting too. Well, you know, that's that's a great place to sort of uh, to, to leave off with, because I think that hopefulness is what I feel. And and coming off you, that energy, Maria, it's always restorative and invigorating for me. I feel like there is a future when I when I look into your eyes on Skype. So 
I just want to say we're, when, when I, uh, I just feel, you know, we're glad you took the time to talk to us today. And that lovely lamp behind you sets the, the tone beautifully. It's illuminating. Um, and and uh, we wish you and Willie the best. Uh, I want to follow on Monday the uh, the virtual uh, gala. So I'll hopefully see you. Oh, then. my gosh. You are yeah. going to see me make a fool of myself. Please be kind. <laughs> oh, I'm always kind. Elizabeth I and I are always kind. Just just drink. So we have a cocktail oh. half hour at 730 on Monday. Um Monday, April 20th. And then the event starts at eight o'clock. So just make sure that you do every single cocktail that we ask you to make at seven 30 and then watch oh the my show. God. And then you're going to have the best time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> drunk, drunk is always a good review. You know, that always guarantees a good review. So, so thank you, Maria. It all comes out. Thank you, Maria. Out. Yeah. Thank you so much for having thank me. You so thank much. you for doing this. Uh, I really appreciate the work. Thank you. Thank you. And now we move to uh, our regular segment, which feels like one of the few things we can hold on to uh, right now. <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk a bit about what I've seen and my favorite uh, things. The, yeah, things, actually. It's, it's part of a series. Uh, I'm completely, I love the Plays in the House series that Seth Rudetsky um, and his partner in crime uh, and in life, uh, Jim Wesley, are doing. Um so every it's there are matinees every Wednesday and Saturday and Saturday at two p.m. Uh, Eastern time, they're doing readings of usually. I mean, so far it's been um, of Broadway plays, and they've been able to get the original cast to do the reading because strangely everybody's available. Um, <laughs> and so I've watched. Um, actually, no, that was that went to Broadway too. The Tale of the Allergist Wife by Charles Bush, Bush, in which Charles Bush played. The main character. It was absolutely wonderful, um, and I was surprised to see how well comedy could work on Zoom. It really worked. And then I watched uh, Thirty Mirrors* uh, by David Lindsay Abair, who read the stage directions. It was kind of great um, with the original off-Broadway cast, uh, including J. Smith Cameron, um, who now a lot more people know because of her role on *Succession*. She plays Jerry on *Succession*. Brilliant. Uh, and. Brilliantly, and Mark McKinney, whose who's character as a puppet, so it really it worked kind of great. Um, and then I watched part, I had to do something else, but I watched part of another Charles Bush play, The Divine Sister, um, again with the full off-world cast. It was fantastically funny. Um, so every Wednesday on, and Saturday matinees. And the trick is those are live. They are not... They're free, but they're live. You cannot watch them later. You have to be there at 2 p.m., Apparently there's a bit of a delay. So if you miss like 10, 15 minutes, you can like start from the, from the top, but that's it. Um, that's all you can do. So it's really of the moment. It's real, real appointment viewing and uh, it's been working surprisingly well. And also all the little technical mishaps are really cute and endearing and you just love them. Where is it online? Uh, so you go to starsinthehouse.com or they also have a YouTube channel. Uh, it's very easy to uh, to to find, um, and I, I found them really uh, satisfying. I found myself like chuckling, you know, on my couch in my sweatpants, which is not how I usually consume theater. <laughs> but it's 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 worked for me. It's worked for me. 
<laughs> so, okay, so Peter, Peter, please yeah. tell me because right. I cannot wait yeah. to hear about this. Okay, so uh, you know, this is the opposite. This is no appointment <laughs> theater of the most extreme kind. I learned of this from Howard Shawitz, the former artistic director of Woolly Mammoth, and so I had to talk to uh, a, a Polish director by the name of Michal Zadara who is a visiting professor at uh, Swarthmore this uh, semester, this year. And uh, with his class, he's teaching a class in Greek tragedy, and the class was working for six months or five months on a production of a very little-known Sophocles play called The Women of Trachis, which is the story of uh, Hercules, Heracles, uh, and his wife, uh, and his, his, his infidelity that leads to her trying to kill him. And... Uh, it was supposed to be done uh, on a stage, and it can't be done now. The, the school went on hiatus, and there's nobody there. And that's literally how the show is going to be done as something you can't see. It's I, To get your head around this, there's no set, there's no actors, there's no audience, but there is a show that no one can look at. It's going to be triggered by a computer that it's a 32 minute set of images that have been compiled by the cast on several computers that in an in a in an empty theater will take place. It opens April 24th. And so I said to Michal, oh, so it opens. He says, well, I said, what opens? And he said, well, nothing. He said, there's no way to see it. He said oh, it's an expression. God. Now it's so it's an expression of the of where we are in terms of the state of the theater right now. And what gives it volume for me is the fact that they worked on this meticulously. They put together a text, their own text from various sources. They explored the characters in depth in this class. Uh, you know, the work that went into it from an entire team, including the classics department, was ex and he's in the theater department. It, it was extraordinary. So the idea, it's going to run for the length of the show that was supposed to run beginning April 24th, but there is no way to access it. Only Michal knows it's happening because he's going to turn the computer on. So I don't, <laughs> I'm, it's somehow fascinating to me. Just the mere fact, knowing that it's happening, I think that it enters your consciousness as something that can't happen has some texture or some reality to it that otherwise it wouldn't if they just canceled it. So I don't know what it is I'm going to feel when I think about it and it's actually going on that I can't gonna, see and no one ever gonna, will. Are you going to put are you going to put a reminder on your phone? Yeah, to, to totally to think about it. Well, it's, it's not. I'm just going to be aware oh, of it. I'm going to because it, it's entered my bloodstream in a way that it never would have if I had just read about, you know, hadn't known about it. But now I know I'm going to write about it because it's just it's so intriguing to me in a sort of existential way. Cause it, it really does, is. That is exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, people always say, oh, you know, the, the, theater is, a, is an ephemeral Art exactly. Form. That's pushing it to its right. absolute logical <laughs> right. conclusion. Well, and it's yeah. well. Think about it. It's like right. The the plays you've seen already, they're gone. The productions you've seen, 
you know, whether they go on or not, the night you saw it is oh, is gone. It's in the wind. It's it's you know scattered. It's in the ether. This. What's the difference if nobody sees it the day it's so after? Good. It's so good. I just love it. I love it. Like, yeah, it's so I do too. I know. I, it's so exactly. I, I knew it to, would be. I can't wait to read it's, what you're going to write about it. Yeah. It's so, oh, uh, yeah. Like, it's so oh, out there. Oh, my God. Oh, by the way, yeah. I I, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I think it's on the 22nd as well, actually. The Maxim Gorky Theater in Berlin is going to stream their production of Hamlet, which I highly encourage everybody to at least look at the trailer, which I think is either on YouTube or, or Vimeo. Just just Google Maxim Gorky Theater Berlin I'm writing it down. Hamlet. I've watched it like five times and I laugh every time. Oh, great. It's the most German looking thing <laughs> you could not, your fevered cabin, your cabin fevered brain could, seriously, I've watched it five times. I cannot get, it's got everything. It's got the live drummer, the wigs, the, the normcore sweater, the, oh my God, it's so good. Um, I may watch it even though there's no subtitle. Uh, but I, I love yeah, it. I, I highly recommend it. If you want like a, three minutes of German levity <laughs> that Hamlet is it oh my god okay wow we kind of made it to the end of another podcast or 50th Yay! I cannot believe it 50th Jesus what a what a weird way to get to to 50 indeed I know hey god and so the end the end of number 50 of three on the Isle of podcast from New York about theater in America and the cosmos clearly um, hosted by American Theatre Magazine, I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. And I'm Peter Marks. Our producer is the never-invisible Erica Huang. You can follow us on Twitter at at 3 onthealecom spelled out, or write to us at 3 onthealecom at gmail.com. Yeah, I think we should do a, please write to us about your theatre experiences uh, right now, because I think that would be a great uh, mailbag for our next episode. Mm, um, tell us what's happening in your area of the U.S., the world, uh, what you're watching. Um, yeah, tell us what, what's happening. Uh, and let us, yeah, let us know what else you would like us to talk about. Um, and don't forget to leave a rave review on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks so much, as always, for listening. And on the on behalf of the two of the of the two of us and Erica. As well as Terry, we wish you good health and peace of mind, and we'll be with you again soon on the aisle.